If you're not there already, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And let's pray before we look at this passage this morning. Father God, we again thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Lord, be with us now as we look at your word, as we, um, Lord, as we see what you would have us learn both individually and corporately as a church family as well. We pray for wisdom, Father. We know we need it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you recognize the passage that uh, Derek read this morning, that is what we looked at a few weeks ago. I think it was the first week of August I was able to be up and, and we went through that parable. And so uh, the reason we had Derek read that again was so that we are uh, able just to simply continue on in the passage. So that's what we'll be doing this morning. We're going to continue on in, in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 22, because Christ continues to teach. But we've got to sort of remind ourselves of where, at, where we are at uh, in Christ's teaching at this point. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 12, uh, Luke writes, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. So remember, we have a huge crowd, crowd of people who have gathered to hear what Christ has to say. Now, some of them, we said, would have very good intentions for coming to hear what Christ had to say. Christ obviously had some notoriety at this point. Uh, he would have performed uh, many miracles at this point. So you would have some people who are excited, who are anxious to come and hear what this man has to say. They would see Christ and they would see, well, he's done all these miracles. Let's, let's see what wisdom he has now to impart. And maybe they've heard, heard Christ teach in other, other settings as well. Then you would have some likely who are coming for the same reason because of the miracles, but maybe for, uh, for a, not so a noble reason as far as when they hear what Christ has to say. Of course, a lot of the religious leaders we probably put in this category that they have come and they are trying to sort of rip up what Christ is saying. So you can imagine you've got thousands of people, there's trampling, there's shoving going on uh, right now. You can imagine Christ teaching and probably some, however many yards back, can't hear what Christ is saying. So there's someone relaying, say, oh, he said this. And remember that old game telephone that you used to play? Remember the game telephone where you'd start and you would whisper to the ear beside you and they would whisper? And of course, the goal is to get to the end without the story having changed. So we don't know, but likely at that point, when you get back to thousands, there's, there's probably people who are maybe even deliberately changing the story, changing what Christ is trying to teach to the people. And then you would have many, of course, who would be grumbling about it, said, ah, he said that. Can you believe that he would say something like that? Those type of things. So that is where we are at. Uh, and then we have what Derek started out in verse 13. So we're, we're almost in the middle of this teaching, or at least Christ has started into his flow of teaching. And 13, someone in the crowd said to him, and remember this man came and he interrupted what Christ was saying. And my inclination when that happened was to, in my fallen sinful self, to cut the man off and say, excuse me, I was on a really good roll here with what I'm trying to say. Let me finish my thought and then we'll get to whatever your question is. But of course, Christ doesn't do that. Remember, this man comes, and he wants Christ to intervene with his situation. He says, my brother's not giving me my share of the inheritance. And he really doesn't actually ask a question. He more demands that Christ be a judge in that. And of course, Christ isn't concerned with that at all. He's not even really concerned about the man's situation. I think what he is concerned with is what the man is concerned with. And of course, then he went on to tell 
the parable as he does. He tells the parable the, that is known as the rich fool, where you have a farmer has a really good crop, and so what does he do? He goes out and he makes bigger barns, right? Bigger storehouses to house his food. And that's really not the problem. I think what Christ is saying the problem is the reason that he wants to have those bigger storehouses to accumulate wealth is not for blessing the Lord or blessing others, ultimately blessing the Lord. It's for blessing himself, isn't it? Because he sits back and he says, now, or, or I will be able to say to my soul, soul, you have acquired whatever you want. Now you can relax. You can eat. You can drink. You can take it easy is really what he's saying. So he has no regard for the Lord but he's placing his trust really in his possessions for his security. And then if you look in verse 21, Christ finishes after, after this parable that he tells. He says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He calls him a fool earlier on in the parable as well. So he describes the man's foolishness saying he is not rich toward God. So as I said, this morning we're simply going to continue on. So we're going to look and we're going to start in verse 22. And to start, I'm actually going to read the, the passage. Verse 22, we're going to read all the way to verse 34, okay? Verse 22, this is, this is Christ. It says, and he said to his disciples. Now, before we continue, most think that this is not just his 12 disciples. Most think that this is still the majority of that crowd. Uh, many times in Scripture, the disciples are referred to as, yes, his 12 disciples specifically, but also those who would have followed him around the countryside or where he's teaching as well. Those who may not even be believers, to be honest, but those who are simply following him, maybe to see his miracles or, or just out of curiosity. But he said to his disciples, verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the, than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he comes back to the treasure aspect, doesn't he? He says the one in verse 20, excuse me, in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, speaking about the rich fool. And then here in 34, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's obvious that Christ is simply continuing his teaching. If you look in verse 22, the first word that Christ says is therefore. Some of your Bibles might say, for this reason. So he's saying, because of this situation that we've had, this man who has interrupted me, now here's this uh, warning that I give you through this parable, because of this, for this reason, therefore, and then he continues on teaching. So he's obviously uh, got some continuity here. 
uh, for what he is teaching why he's, and why he's teaching it. And I think that when, when Christ told this previous parable, of course, he's, he's um, rebuking the idea of storing up treasures on earth, isn't he? He's rebuking the idea, rebuking the man who is storing up things so that he can eat, so that he can drink, so that he can be merry, so that he can relax. He's rebuking that. So naturally, what question do you think the disciples might have had? Those who were around Christ. I think they might have said, how are we going to eat? If you're telling us not to worry about our earthly things that we need to store up in order to survive, but to, uh, to, to store up treasure in heaven, they might be saying, that's a great idea. And we're right on board with you, Jesus. But how are we going to eat? How are we going to have our needs met? So naturally, Christ, I think, answers that question with this next chunk of teaching. Because I think they would have. They would have wondered how their earthly needs are going to be met if they're simply focused uh, on laying up treasures in heaven. So Christ moves to the teaching that really what he's saying is we ought not to be concerned with what we're going to eat. We shouldn't be concerned with what we're going to wear. And I think that is a natural response uh, to his teaching. So he's really speaking about anxiety, isn't he? And if you've got a little subheading, of course, uh, those weren't given by the uh, original writers of Scripture, but your subheading, mine says, do not be anxious. Some of yours might say, do not worry. That's the, that's the, the general thought that Christ is trying to portray. And anxiety is no stranger uh, to us in Canada, around the world as well. I checked a study recently in 2018 studying Canadians, and it said that 41% of Canadians identify themselves as someone who struggles with anxiety. 41%. Now, that may or may not be uh, anxiety over basic needs, which I think is what Christ is really teaching about. That's anxiety, of course, over everything, and that's giving someone their own ability to identify themselves as, as dealing or struggling with anxiety. But still, that's a big number, isn't it? Almost half the people. So as Christ is teaching us about the anxiety that we face and how to cope with that worry, I think he focuses uh, greatly on the Lord. He doesn't really focus on us, does he? He doesn't really turn to us as if we are the ones who are able to take that worry away. But he gives us truths about the Lord, and this is how we're able to cope with worry that comes with any of these scenarios, of course, that, that Christ gives us. But Christ presents someone who specifically worries about physical basic needs, what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink. And as I said, he doesn't give us the antidote to that and say, it's because of what you're able to accomplish. He gives us truth about the Lord. He doesn't say, don't stop worrying about what you're going to eat, because look at your pantry. Your pantry's full. Or look at your bigger barns. Your bigger barns are full. He doesn't say don't worry about what you're going to wear because you can just work harder and you can earn money and you can buy new clothes. He doesn't say that. The solution that he offers for us as opposed to worrying about these things is he focuses, of course, on who the Father is and what the Father has done and is able to do for us. He teaches us truths about the Father and in that way, we're able to cast our worries about him, or sorry, on him. And we could, we could really apply this to anything. Any struggle that we have, any, any um, temptation that we have to fall into uh, not trusting the Father, it's not simply looking at ourselves, or it's not actually at all looking at ourselves, it's looking at who the Father is in order to be a remedy to that. And this is why it's vital that we know God's character, isn't it? It's vital that we know who God is. 
as when we have a proper understanding of God, we can be confident of many things. It takes away much worry. It takes away much difficulty in our life. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God, he says, is the most important thing about us. And then Matt Chandler, continuing on with that thought, he says this, when you think about God, what you think about him will shape everything about you. It will shape how you approach marriage, money, work, leisure, parenting, and so on. It will literally shape everything that you do. What we know about God will shape everything that we do. And this is why Christ gives us insight into God's character when we're tempted to worry about things such as this in our lives. He did it just a few verses earlier. He's speaking about anxiety about something else. In Luke chapter 12, look in verse 11. Probably just up a little bit on your, on your page there. Look in verse 11 of Luke 12. And the context here, Christ is speaking to his disciples and, and specifically he's talking to them about um, what to do when they face persecution. And he's telling them not to be worried about it, not to be worried when you face persecution. Look in verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, Christ says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. And then look at the reason he gives for uh, not being anxious. Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So he's not saying when you are anxious about what you're to say in front of these rulers, authorities, whether you're witnessing to them or you're facing persecution, whatever the case, he's not saying don't be anxious about it because look at all the study that you've done up to this point. Look at all the Bible verses that you know up until this point. Those things are all very helpful and very good, but his reasoning is he says the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say when you are anxious about that specific situation. He says don't worry about Later on, don't worry about providing for yourself because look who your father is. Look who your father is and look what he has done and look at his characteristics and how he cares for you. So in light of what he's just said, Christ seems to be making the point really that not only do I need to worry about or don't I need to worry about what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear, my basic needs as a believer, as a child of God, but he's really saying that I've never been the one to provide those things. I've never been the one who is able to provide those things. He, he just told the parable, remember, about the farmer, and the farmer has great crops, and the crops multiply, so he builds bigger barns. And we talked about the farmer last time, that a farmer can work as hard as they want to, and yet they are still at the mercy of God, really, aren't they? They're at the mercy of, our unbelieving world would say, the weather around them or the climate. They're at the mercy of, ultimately, God, for if they will be successful or if they will not be. So really, uh, Christ is saying that it's always been God who has provided for me. And first, what he's going to do in that first big chunk, that first big paragraph probably in your Bible there, he's going to talk about how God physically provides for us. So he's got this broken up in a couple different sections, but this first big paragraph is how God is going to physically provide. Look in verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? What he uses in order to allow us to not be fearful about what we're going to eat, he uses the example of birds. 
uses birds. Now, I think he does that for a few reasons. Uh, If you don't know, Israel uh, is what they call a bottleneck for the migratory path for birds. And uh, experts, experts estimate that 540 different species of birds fly through Israel every year during the migratory path, 540 species, and over 500, um, 500 million birds every year fly through Israel. So the people would have had a good understanding of birds in general, right? And we, all, we, we said last time, too, that Christ uses illustrations, uses parables that his people will understand, so he uses that example, but specifically he uses a raven. He uses a raven specifically, and he does that for a couple reasons, I think. Firstly, I think he does it because other, other, another spot in Scripture, a raven is referred to as unclean. They're referred to as despised. So they're not a, um, not a nice, really looking bird, really, are they? If, you're gonna, if, if you were to say, uh, what's the nicest bird you can think of? You might think of some warbler, if you're a fan of blue jays. Scarlet tanager, bright color bird, whatever you can think of, you're probably not going to say a raven. But that's what Christ uses. But more importantly, he does that because a raven is actually incapable of providing for itself. It's incapable, a raven is, of acquiring food. And that's why he says they don't have storehouses, they don't have barns, because ravens don't actually gather food for themselves. So who are ravens dependent on? They're dependent on God. God provides ravens with food because they don't gather food on their own, so they are fully dependent on God for their next meal to be there for them. And of course, God has designed it so that meal will be there for them. So they survive only because God designed it that way and designed them, them, so, them that way. So it's no surprise that this is the, the animal that Christ picks. Uh, God speaks when God's speaking to Job. Remember in Job when uh, when, when Job is starting to question what the Lord is doing, and God asks Job a lot of rhetorical questions, doesn't he? God says, where were you when the foundations were made? That, those type of questions. To humble Job and to see that Job is not God and, and God is. And God actually mentions the raven in, in Job 38. God says to Job, who provides for the raven its prey? Of course, God is saying it's me, but, but, but God says, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Then back in verse 12, Christ gets his point across when he says at the end of verse 24, when he's just talked about the ravens, they don't gather, they don't store food, they don't have storehouses. He says in verse 24, of how much more value are you than the birds? Of course, it's a question that brings an obvious implication of our worth as people, as mankind, as human beings. So in this, Christ is saying that we can have confidence that the Lord will provide for our needs uh, until his purpose for our life is done, right? Until God has decreed that our life here on earth is over, he promises to sustain us for that lifetime. In his illustration, when, when teaching about the needlessness of worrying about food, uh, he uses ravens. Later, later on down, uh, when we read through, you saw he uses lilies, he uses grass to talk about uh, how uh, when we worry about being, being clothed, this is sort of the remedy, this is what we ought to think about about our Father for it. But he takes an interlude. Look in, in verse uh, 26. He pauses for, or sorry, verse 25. He pauses for a little bit, and he says, 
and which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Now that word, if you look in verse 25, which of you being anxious can add a single hour? That word hour is literally a cubit. That's what Christ is saying, a cubit. Now a cubit's just a, a unit of measurement. It was, about, it was about a foot and a half. So really what Christ is saying is, which of you by being anxious can add a foot and a half to your span of life? Of course, we've translated it as an hour, as hour because we're looking at time. We're not looking at measurement. But I think that's an important distinction that Christ makes because he's saying, look at this vast expanse around you that you see, and yet you, as my pastor growing up used to say, as puny mankind, right? You as puny mankind cannot even add a foot and a half to your lifespan. So he's saying, of course, an hour is a small time at, at that too when we think about eternity. But he's saying, if you can't even do that, why are you anxious about these other things? And of course, his implication is that God can do that. God can do that. God is able to add a foot and a half to your life. He's able to add an hour to your life if he wants to. And that's a very easy task, of course, for Almighty God. So he's, he's, he's really putting us in our place when we say, well, I don't, I'm worried that my Father's not going to provide for me. I'm worried that my Father's not going to provide the food that I need. Say, well, look at who your father is. Your father can do this. He can, add, he can add to your life if he wants to, which you can't even do. Something, such a menial task. So God has promised to provide for his followers until our determined time is over. I think that's clear from this passage. After this look at uh, Christ, he then he moves on to the clothing aspect. Look in verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. And then he simply and or he simply closes that sentence and he says, oh, you have, or sorry, uh, and do not worry. So he used ravens to get his point across about food because ravens don't gather food. Seemingly a, an easy illustration for Christ to make. And then he talks about lilies. He says, these lilies, they don't, they don't do anything. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't, they don't have to work hard as plants to look beautiful to be clothed. He said he compares him to Solomon. He compares lilies to Solomon. Now Solomon would have been thought to be a very nicely dressed person. Probably the nicest dressed, the most kingly dressed person in the history of Israel was, if you were to ask them, they would have, high on their list, they would have said Solomon, I'm sure. And I think that's why Christ uses this analogy. It says Solomon, who is the, the most um, kingly dressed person, royally dressed person that you can think of, has to work hard to be clothed, doesn't he? And even he isn't even close to the beauty that the lilies have, who don't have to work, who don't have to spin, who don't have to toil at all. So plants in general don't have to do that. And if God would so magnificently clothe lilies, and then, of course, he mentions grass as well, where God clothes the grass, where today we see the grass out there, and then tomorrow it dies, and so we burn it, right? It's what we use to start fire, to cook or to do whatever we need to do. If God would so clothe the grass that their lifespan, that a grass's lifespan is unbelievably short and seemingly meaning, meaningless, but yet God cares to do that, how much more will he do that 
for us as well. So Christ is revealing the truth of the Father, that the Father has a compassionate care for His people as we are made in His image. Uh, Many different passages, of course, in Scripture talk about our uniqueness as mankind, our uniqueness as people. We are made in the image of God, and uh, so if God would clothe the grass, how much more does He care for us? Since we are more valuable than the birds, we are more valuable than the plants. Look at verse 28, because this is sort of a, um, a shot, I think, to our pride. These are things that I know at times in my life I struggle with worrying about. Am I going to have the basic needs? Is the Lord going to provide my basic needs? And that could be anything we think of basic, whether it's clothes, food, or something else. But look in verse 28. And right at the end there, he says, how much more will he clothe you? And look what he calls his listeners, those who worry about this type of thing. He says, oh, you of little faith. That hurts, doesn't it? Because I think, I know I've been there before. And so for, for me to think that I've been in a spot where I've worried about what I'm going to wear or how I'm going to be provided for, Christ says that's having little faith, little trust, Quite the rebuke uh, as what he's saying is that when we're consumed with worry, when we're consumed with doubt and fear about God's position for our basic needs, ultimately it's a lack of trust in the wisdom of God, isn't it? A lack of trust in the wisdom of God to provide for his children, and that could be whether we think that that God simply doesn't want to, for whatever reason, provide for his children, or that he doesn't have the power to do it. Regardless, Christ is saying that if we worry about it, we are those of little faith. We lack a trust for God. And then he says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. He says, don't be worried. So if our entire life is concerned with what I'm going to eat, then I'm not as concerned with the glory of God, am I? I'm not as concerned with the glory of God if I'm constantly thinking about if the Lord is going to take care of me or not. In 1647, the Westminster Catechism, very uh, well-known phrase, talked about our our chief purpose as man. And here's what it said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our purpose for being here, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So we can't miss this purpose of what our lives are to be about, which is what the rich fool did in the parable before that. Then Christ continues on, verse 30, says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So he contrasts uh, what looks like an unbeliever and a believer, because he says in 30, all the nations of the world seek after these things. So unbelievers seek after these things. Then he says, your father knows that you need them. And, And what I see there is I see that the world, the unbeliever, the person who is not a child of God, does not have this promise that we have, doesn't have the promise that God will provide uh, their needs for them, as we do as God's children. So Christ is saying, don't focus on acquiring food. As he says to seek the kingdom of God, he says, don't focus on acquiring food, clothing, wealth, possessions. Instead, he says, focus on the kingdom of God, focus on worshiping, serving, and living for Christ. He says to pursue holiness, obedience, truth, love, and then he says, you'll have what you need. We mentioned this verse last time when looking at the rich fool 
and the rich fool's messed up priorities. Colossians 3, Paul writes this to the the people of uh, Colossae. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So the goal and the interest of the one who believes, the one who's a follower of Christ, our goal is the kingdom of God, working for the honor of Christ, the honor of the Father. So that life, of course, begins with repentance for our individual sin, turning from that sin, accepting the free gift of righteousness uh, because of Christ's death and resurrection, and then, of course, results in a life that's dedicated to His service, not for our salvation, but because of our salvation, dedicated to His service, His glory, His honor, as we seek to obey Him and to work uh, for His kingdom. This is what the follower of Christ's life is characterized by. And Jesus promises that when we seek his kingdom, when we have that as our purpose, Christ says our needs will be met. Now, it can be tempting. I know for myself, as I said before, it can be tempting and easy to get distracted from that purpose of seeking the kingdom of God. It's easy to fall into worry, to fall into fear about my needs not being met, being met, needing met. It's easy to do. We can be tempted to build bigger barns. We can be tempted to acquire things in order to have security in our acquired possessions. But on the flip side, Christ, of course, isn't saying don't eat. Christ isn't saying don't buy clothes, don't make clothes. He's not doing that. He's saying don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. Don't fear that the Father will not provide that for us. And that's what Christ says is the problem that we need to uh, turn from. However, when we're seeking his kingdom, what I want to emphasize is he may not give us what we want, but he'll give us what we need until he has determined that our our time on this earth is up. After he talks about the Father uh, providing for us physically, and that's really what that that big chunk is there, uh, he's going to move to the spiritual aspect. God's provision uh, for us spiritually, causing us not to worry. Look in verse 32. It says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, we know from Isaiah chapter 53 that it was God's good pleasure to, uh, to send Christ and to have Christ die for our sin uh, and then resurrect. So he takes good pleasure in that. He delights in that, some of your Bibles might say. And here Christ says he delights in giving us the kingdom. He wants to do it. It gives him joy to do that as his children. All of the riches of the kingdom, and those include righteousness, joy, peace, Christ says are ours. They're ours as heirs of Christ. Or sorry, as fellow heirs of Christ, heirs of God. So just as we're not to fear that God will not provide physically, I think God, I think Christ gives us a promise here that we don't need to fear that he's not going to provide spiritually for us. He wants to give us the kingdom that he promised to us. It's another promise that Christ is giving us from the Father uh, for us to be encouraged by. Christ then finishes the thought. He gives us, he gives an invitation. And verse 34 is, or sorry, uh, verse 33 looks a little out of the ordinary because he says, um, you know, that, that God wants to give us the kingdom. And then he goes into a list of commands in verse 33 that are seemingly out of place. And most think that the reason he's doing that is for the benefit of those who are unbelievers who are listening. 
so that he is speaking, and he's speaking, yes, to his disciples, to followers of Christ, to followers of Christ, and those who are not followers of Christ can hear it, and they can understand some of it, but probably didn't get all of it. So it seems that Christ, most think that Christ takes a break here, and he wants to speak to the masses. Yes, speak to believers, but also to sort of um, cause the unbelievers who are listening to Uh, to perk up as well, to wonder what he is teaching. Look in verse 33. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and where no moth destroys. He almost gives a gospel invitation, doesn't he? He's giving a gospel invitation. He tells, tells people, sell what you have, seek after a treasure that is not here on earth, seek after a treasure that is eternal where no moth can come, where no thief can come and steal or destroy that treasure. So he gives us the recipe sort of as to how we are to store up treasures in heaven. He says, sell what we have, give to the poor. Do you remember another time when Christ said something very similar to this? Speaking to the rich young ruler. Remember Matthew chapter 19 when the rich young ruler comes to, the, comes to Christ and what's his question? He says, what shall I do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That was the rich young ruler's question. It really should be our ultimate question as any human being, as any person of any time period. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That was the rich young ruler's question. And Christ said you need to follow the commandments. And Christ lists off a few commandments to the rich young ruler. And what's the rich young ruler's response? His arrogance, right? His arrogance. He says, I've kept all these things. But what I notice is that when Christ is talking to this man, what I am tempted to do, if I'm speaking to someone and I say, and they say, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And if I were to answer as Christ and say, you need to follow all the commandments. And if they were to say to me, I've done that. What's my temptation? Say, no, you haven't. That's a joke. That's a joke. We all know that we're sinful. We all know that we've not followed the law perfectly. So Christ is saying to this man, you have to be perfect, the rich young ruler. And the man says, I am perfect. What do I need to do now? And what I notice is that Christ doesn't get hung up on that. He doesn't say, well, if we're being honest here, buddy. He said, remember back when you were 12 and you pushed your little sister down in the mud? He doesn't say that. He says, okay, he answers to the rich young ruler. He says, if you would be perfect, so he's almost conceding, say, okay, if you're perfect, as you say you are, he says, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. That's what he says to the rich young ruler. Christ doesn't even argue with the man about the fact that he's certainly not perfect, but he simply illustrates for the man that he's not as devoted as he claims to be. He's not as devoted to Christ, to the Father, as he claims to be. Because what's the response of the rich young ruler? It says he went away sad, right? He went away sad, disappointed because he had great wealth, because he was a wealthy man. So Christ there illustrates to that man, and I think here as well, he is making the same point that when our heart is trusting in Christ, all of these material things ultimately don't matter, do they? They ultimately don't matter. So he illustrated to the rich young ruler that that was the case. We see the rich fool here in Luke chapter 12. That's the case, right? He's trusting in his riches. So great possessions had a great power in his life. 
So ultimately, and we'll see because of verse 34, Christ is not saying to sell everything and then you will have eternal life. That is not our way to inherit eternal life. Of course, we know it's through Christ. But he's simply making an illustration that if we are not willing to sell everything that we have, to let go of this material world that we have, then we are not devoted to Christ. And that's where the rich, excuse me, that's where the rich young ruler was at. And that's where the rich fool is at here in Luke 12 as well. Teaches a similar concept on the Sermon on the Mount when he says we can't serve two masters. Can't serve this world. We can't serve wealth and and the Lord at the same time. Earlier in Luke, uh, Christ makes a similar statement. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny these worldly pleasures that we so much want to hold on to. So when we give our allegiance to Christ, it shows by the way that we view our possessions. We don't give our possessions away so that we'll get eternal life. We give our possessions away if the Lord asks us that in order to bring him glory. So if I'm living for the glory of Christ, really my goal isn't acquiring wealth. My goal isn't acquiring food or clothes. Uh, My goal is glorifying Christ. And the Father, Christ, says that he will take care of the rest. So Christ, as I said, brings us all together in in, uh, verse 34. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he says, you're trusting in the, the things of the world. That's not where your treasure needs to be. Your treasure needs to be in eternal things in things of Christ, and things of the Father. So he clarifies his meaning that salvation uh, comes through him alone, embracing him as the Savior by God's grace apart from, apart from what we can do. As we close, how does that change the way that we live? Because anytime we look at a passage of Scripture, it needs to cause me to do something, doesn't it? It needs to cause me to ponder, but then it needs to cause me to act on something. Our theology needs to shape us. What we know about God needs to determine, affect what we do on a daily basis. So how does that affect when I go to work tomorrow morning? Or how does that affect when I'm in the grocery store and someone cuts me off in line? It's tempting to get angry. How does that work in a week or two, kids, when you go back to school? As exciting as that is going to be, to be back in school. How does that work when we're speaking to our spouse? our kids, our parents, our friends, whatever the case is. And as we said, knowing the character of God will greatly influence me when I'm tempted to worry about things that I need. So when I'm tempted to fret, when I'm tempted to fear that I'm not going to have the things that I need, nor not the things that I want, but of course the things that I need, when I'm tempted to worry about that, uh, my focus needs to come off of myself, needs to go to the Father fully. And since he loves his children, I think we see a promise here that I'm going to have the things that I need until the Lord returns or until until the Lord determines that my time here on earth is through. And if you're a child of God, you have that promise as well. We have another promise of God when we give him our anxieties and our worry. Uh, When the Apostle Paul is closing his letter to the Philippians, he gives them some general encouragement, gives them some exhortation, Uh, to their church family, to their church body there at Philippi. He tells them not to be anxious. A very well-known passage, Philippians 4, he says, don't be anxious. Uh, But what he doesn't say, he doesn't say don't ignore your concerns. If, if, If you have a child and comes to you and says, there's no food at home, say, ah, I'm not supposed to be worried about getting food. Right? 
We still have a responsibility, a concern to provide for those, yes, who God has entrusted to us, but also for ourselves. If I'm concerned with the glory of God, then I need to eat, right? If you're concerned with the glory of God, then you need to eat, or you're not going to be able to be used very well, are you? And nor am I. So Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Then he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And then here's where he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, he doesn't say ignore your anxieties. He says, Let your requests be made known to God. And he gives the result of that. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we have worry, we have fear about our basic needs. Pray about them, thank the Lord for them, and trust those to him, and God promises to give us peace. He promises to give us the peace of God. That is a result of our anxieties. Great promise that the Lord gives us from his word. Let's pray, and then we will uh, sing. Lord, thank you for today. We thank you for your word, Father. Uh, We pray that you would give give us wisdom as we read it, as we study it. Uh, Even throughout this week, Lord, that other passages that we are looking at, that you would use those to shape us and to guide us, to, to shape our understanding of who you are, of your care for us, your care to protect us and provide for us. Thank you for your provision, Father. Lord, we pray uh, that you would uh, continually be with us. And even as we sing now, that we would sing uh, with glad hearts, with joyful hearts, uh, for who you are and for what you have done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.